Turn with me to Matthew 16. We're going to teach this morning on fasting, but I want to exhort just a minute before we talk about this 21 days of prayer and fasting that we're going to participate in. Um, as we were praying there and worshiping and seeking God, having a walk with God can in many ways become, uh, I don't want to say boring, but you can hit the doldrums like you can in a marriage. And the reason you have to fight that in a marriage is because you're faithful. It's consistent. It's stable. It's the same old, same old. And when things are same old, same old, uh, newness can wear off. Polish can wear off. Shine can wear off. And so you always see these articles or you hear sermons about how to keep the fires going in your marriage, how to keep the flame alive, how to spice up your marriage. And they're just trying to help folks kindle what they've got and not let familiarity breed contempt or the spirit of familiarity cause things to become complacent. It's one thing when you're young or maybe you're older and you've never been married or you've lost a spouse and so you're back pursuing again. There's a fire that comes with pursuing that woman. There's a passion that comes when you know you're being pursued. And that's fun. That's exciting. And then you, you, then you land the woman of your dreams or the man of your dreams asks you to marry him and you get into marriage and there's what we call traditionally the honeymoon phase. But then the monotony, and there's nothing wrong with monotony because consistency builds progress, but the monotony sets in and you start to uh, lose your fire. You lose your zeal. And if you're not careful in a marriage, you begin to mistreat each other. Um, it's not as exciting. And so that's why psychologists and love authors and even pastors try to tackle from, we from the scriptures on how to keep your marriage exciting. And really, it's a matter of thankfulness. That kind of notion certainly does settle into Christianity, especially in our culture when we are entertainment-based and we have a short attention span, so we're always having to advance the next music style. We're always having to advance the next special effect for a movie. We're always needing more gunplay in a movie or uh, more outlandish stunts because they say the viewer is getting smart, the viewer is getting savvy, the viewer is getting immune to past adventure. You go watch action movies from the 80s and you think that's so bad. And then you go watch today's action movies and you think that's so slick. How could they ever make it better? And they always do. In our culture, we have to fight the boredom and the monotony in our marriages, but also in our walk with God. My pastor encourages us to always help our people fight boredom. And so what happens is you come to the same church because God requires faithfulness. There's no permission to be a church tramp. And by tramp, we mean you tramp from one place to the other. It's the old hobo. It's another term for hobo. Then the term became applied to loose women. I don't mean it as a loose woman. I mean it as a hobo. There's no permission to be a church hobo where, you know, we've served three years at this church and, you know, we're just ready for something new. What, do you do that with your wife? Do you do that with your job? No, because, you know, even though the job may be boring, you stay there long enough, you'll get promoted. You'll get the next position. You hang out for the promotion. So we have to fight it in the church because we're faithful and I don't chase entertainment. During worship there, I was thinking about churches that I know of who spend the whole week focused on the production. And they admit as much. Our whole week goes towards pulling off. That's what they call it. Pulling off the next production, the next, quote, experience, the next service. That's, that's they exist. It's almost like an Opryland production. It's almost like Broadway. The they don't call it a service. They don't call it a worship service. They call it an experience or the production. And I'm thankful we don't have that here. I like entertainment. I don't like it in church. I'm all for a movie or a video game. Don't want it in the house of God because this ought to be something we can't get anywhere else. I like that our musicians, our worship leaders, they are practiced. They are polished. Uh, they do rehearse so that they can flow together. But when we get up here, it's not production. When we get up here, we close our eyes. We're not watching them to see them jam on the whammy bar. We're not looking for the drum solo for big guy to spin his sticks and, you know, have one hand behind his back like Def Leppard and just wear it out. It's not a production. They're up here because they got to be in front of somebody. It'd be weird for us to turn our backs on them and look at the wall. So we just kind of look somewhere. But I'm thankful we don't have production. A lot of churches do. But when you're looking for a production and that's church to you 
and you're fighting the spirit of boredom, then the church has to up the last production and then up the last production. And how are we going to outdo the last Easter cantata? How are we going to outdo the last nativity play? How are we going to outdo that last service? And that's a, a rat race you can't win. But then for those who don't have production, uh, we have just, just, just the word and just, just, just the worship of our God. We have to fight boredom. And if we're not careful, the faithfulness that we're good at can breed boredom and dullness. And so I was mindful of having this fresh living walk with God where you have a fresh spring water coming constantly out of your walk with God. And it's something you do and you stir it up. You draw water out of that well of salvation. You're thankful. Growing up in Louisiana, we would spend summers in Tanjpaho Parish, a little town called Amit. And coming off where my family homestead is, we'd always curve onto the old highway. And there was always this pond that I knew very well because over the course of my childhood, I watched this cattle pond go from a fresh infeeder to algae depleted and dead. And as we were worshiping there, I, I kept thinking about that in our Christian walk, that what is today or what was once a fresh spring-fed pond, if we cut off the source of fresh supply, it becomes oxygen depleted. Your oxygen is either heated out by the sun and evaporated off, and now it becomes algae overrun. Even turtles don't want to hang out there. The cattle don't even want to go there because it's so hot. It doesn't refresh them. It's possible to become that. The pond is in the same place it's ever been. If I were to go back there today, it would be right there when you first come off the McMichael Road onto the highway. It's going to be right there. It hasn't changed locations. It's faithful. It's just dead. It's got water. You can just smell it. When the cows and the bullfrogs have abandoned it and the egrets won't land in it and all it is is algae, it's dead. But it's water. But there's no oxygen, there's no tadpoles, there's no fish, there's no fresh infeeder. We can become faithful to a local church, and we should. And yet what was once a sparkling, fresh pool that you could see to the bottom in, and you want to go swimming in it. We've all been on hikes, I hope, hopefully we've been hiking. I live in this area, not go on a hike, it might be a shame. We've all seen a pool of water that even in February, it's so inviting because it's crystal clear and you can see six or seven feet to the bottom. You see a uh, you know, rainbow trout or something. You think, man, if it wasn't 10 degrees, I'd jump in that. Note to self, I want to come back in July or August when it's 100 and that's still 50 degrees and I'll jump in it. That ought to be our life. It's possible to go to church and go to hell and still have water. We have to fight to maintain a fresh walk with God. Just like you got to fight to maintain a fresh relationship with your spouse, a fresh relationship with your kids. You have to stay fresh. You have to stay current. Yesterday's water won't cut it. Yesterday's water flowed in from the spring to the pond yesterday. Today, if it isn't replenished and refreshed, it will get stagnant. The second, it's like they brought this cup of water out. It was uh, cold. And now I'm noticing as it sat here, it has warmed up and now we're forming air bubbles. We're forming air bubbles because as it warms up, any dissolved oxygen, any dissolved gases are coming to the surface, and this water will change its flavor sitting out at tap room. So will you. And it's possible to come to a lively church and never draw on any of that fresh spring water. And the way we tell is, does your life change? Or are you still critical, still sour, still mad, still angry? We have to maintain this fresh walk with God, a new and living way if we're going to walk with God. Amen. So there's my exhortation. Matthew 16. Uh, we have a video. I'll have to show it tonight. I don't have it ready right now. We've got this video. 11 churches um, have come together in our community for the next 21 days to pray and fast. And they're all teaching on fasting today, as far as I know. And our commitment for the next 21 days is to pray and fast and pray for several lines of uh, the will of God. They we're praying for unity among the churches, which I'm very thankful that my friend, Pastor Steve Taboo, who's the pastor of the river, 
there on the south side of the interstate. He has a tremendous vision for unity among the pastors. And any unity we have among pastors, I blame completely on Pastor Steve. It's always his vision. He always calls us together. We always come running. And so this is mostly his vision. He's big on unity. So we're praying for unity among the churches, which we've never really had in this community. Not even among the denominations. There was always competition, and every denomination had their black sheep churches that they looked down their nose at. But I'm thankful that we are able to produce unity across some Church of Christ's churches and some of the Baptist churches and some of the Pentecostal churches and even some of the other guys will show up from time to time. So one of the things we're doing in the next 21 days that we're going to add to our regular prayer life is unity among the churches and also a move of God that we might reach the community. So really, as, as the church is strong, the move of God is strong because the end game is to win souls and glorify God. But on top of that, and again, we'll show the video tonight. It's only about a two-minute video. Each of us pastors recorded about two or three lines or four lines for the video. On top of that, we want to harness this time of prayer and fasting to tackle whatever we've been struggling with. And that's why I want to teach on fasting this morning. We want to use this prayer time to beat whatever sin God has really been dealing with you about, whether it's for the last month or the last year. Or sometimes it's something we've been dealing with since we were a kid, and we keep saying like Paul, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? At some point, we have to get the victory and move on to the next Goliath. If we build our whole life in the shadow of Goliath, that's not much of a shadow. That's not much of a life. At some point, we have to come out of the trenches like David and say, what's in it for me? And when the Lord says a lot, then you say, all right, I'll get some stones. I think maybe sometimes we're wondering what's in it for me? A whole lot if you'll just beat it. The blessing is always on the other side of yes, sir. The blessing is on the other side of obedience. We don't ever want to be comfortable in our sin. We don't want to make justification for our sin. We don't want to say, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. We want to make sure we call sin, sin like God does. When I was a younger man in college, I don't even think I was spirit-filled yet. I had my first Holy Ghost dream, and I was cleaning up a lot of stuff in my life, getting rid of stuff, getting rid of this and getting rid of that, removing all carnality out of my life that was really defining me. And I was stuck on this one thing that I thought, do I really need to get rid of that? I've gotten rid of this music and got rid of those movies and got rid of those friends, and here's this thing. And I was, my heart was trying to justify it, like I could serve God and still maintain this thing. And so at 19 or 20, I had my first, what I would call a Holy Ghost dream. And in this dream, I was standing atop one of those mesas that like you see out in Arizona, what's called Monument Park. Typical Western background. You expect to see John Wayne shoot somebody with it in the background. Standing on top of one of those. There's actually two of them called the mittens. They look like mittens. And it was, that's what it reminded me of. And on this other mesa, a great way off was this giant green dragon that just nothing more to say but a giant green dragon. And that mesa would try to move to me in this dream. And as that dragon tried to come near to me, it was like we were magnetized and we repulsed. So he would try to move in five yards. My mesa would move away five yards because my heart would say, no, 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 no. I don't need that dragon on my mesa. Not at all. There's barely enough room for me here. But something happened funny in the dream. That dragon began to morph into a woman that looked attractive. And the more it looked attractive, the closer I would allow its mesa to come to mine. It began to kind of morph like you might see in a movie for a dragon to transform into a human. The more it morphed into a woman, and it was nothing provocative, it was just something attractive, the more I would allow it to come closer. But the second it began to regress in its morphism and go back towards a dragon, we would separate. And that went back and forth. I, it never completely transformed into a woman, and I never allowed it to touch my mesa because I knew it would hop over. But I'm 19 years old. As soon as I woke up, I said, I know what I'm doing. I'm justifying sin. As long as I could make that thing excusable, I'd allow it closer into my life. And the more I could justify it, the more I would allow it in. And the Lord just dealt with me in a simple little picture that that was wrong. If you can pinpoint whatever your thing is, because we're still moving in this vein as a local church, this vein of let's use 2023 to get the victory over sin, insecurity, weights, bondages, shame, you name it. 
porn, addiction, debt, whatever has held you back. This is our year to tackle that. Now, every year is a year to tackle that. We don't get to get through 2023. You haven't got the victory. You get to go back. No, we just, I don't want to die working on the thing I'm working on today. Not unless God says it's a generational project. But, you know, when you die, all your work is done. And my kids aren't going to work on me. They're going to work on whatever God gives them. I want us to use fasting as a tool for the next 21 days, not just to pray unity for our region or the pastors, and not just for an outpouring of the Spirit of God and the spirit of revival and evangelism, but I also want us to, to use it as a tool to beat sin in our life. So I want to talk about fasting. I shared with uh, some of you that were here last night that we were in this meeting and one of the Baptist pastors spoke up. It's Baptists and Pentecostals that were all that were at this meeting. There's about seven of the 11 that were there. And this one Baptist pastor spoke up and he said, uh, he said, I got to be honest with you. I never had ever fasted until a few years ago. He said, because as Baptists, we weren't taught it. Now, this is a seminarian trained pastor, great man of God, love him and respect him dearly. And he said, and then looked at us Pentecostals. We were sitting on this side of the tables. He said, you Pentecostals, you guys know that you got the corner market on fasting. It's like, you guys know what to do. It's part of your doctrine. And one of the guys said, well, because pastor, we Pentecostals believe the whole Bible, (laughs) which was a playful jab. Some folks still doubt whether we should be fasting. Maybe you're of the mindset that it's Old Testament. So I want to look at a few scriptures to show you that it's not. And then we're going to look at what we can fast. Now, we in this church and kind of in our circles are afforded a lot of doctrine because Pentecostals are experts at fasting. And when you become an expert at something, God starts showing you new ways and avenues of fasting. You don't just have to fast food, but if food is your thing, you should probably fast it. Maybe video games are your thing. Whatever your hindrance is, that's what you want to fast. But let's talk about fasting in general. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. We're going to build the case that fasting is for the New Testament believer. Somebody once said, well, I don't see it anywhere in the epistles, so I'm not going to do it. And uh, that's kind of an ignorant doctrinal stance. That person probably liked to bake. And I, don't, I love food. I just love health better. Yeah, I, I like to eat, and I can throw down some sushi. I can throw down some pizza. I can throw down some peach ice cream. There's just something about like homemade peach ice cream. That's probably not a good subject to get on while we're talking about fasting. <laughs> I can throw down, but I like being able to go anywhere the Lord calls me on a mission trip, drive past a mountain, say, Scudder, let's get to the top of that. How far can we drive? And then hike it and not even fret. You know, a couple months ago, we were at 10,000 feet and it was thin breathing. But I thought, let's do some burpees just to see if we can. So we did. And Brett films and laughs because he can tell I'm in oxygen debt. And every time I come up, water just pours out of my mouth like I'm vomiting water. I like being able to do that. I like some sushi. (laughs) I like pizza. I like cereal. I like pot roast. I like food. But I like being able to hike a mountain at 10,000 feet better. I like health better. Nothing tastes as good as health. Nothing tastes as good as a low resting heart rate and the ability to walk anywhere you want to go. Amen. Matthew 6, verse 16. Moreover, if you decide to fast, moreover, if your denomination promotes it, red letters, Jesus says, when. So apparently everybody he spoke to was in the habit of fasting. I want us to see, this is the Sermon on the Mount. He's just followed up the Beatitudes, longest sermon recorded. And part of the assumption is everybody there serves God through fasting. It's such a main staple, he has to address how they do it so they don't do it wrong. He doesn't even have to teach them how to do it. He has to teach them how to adjust their heart when they do it. Because it was such a staple of Judaism and seeking the living God. He doesn't have to say, oh, I'm sorry, is there a question? What's fasting? 
He just throws it out there because everybody knows what he's talking about. Furthermore, whatever problem he's addressing, which is the hypocrisy of it, everybody's kind of flirting with that too, so they understand what he's talking about. He doesn't have to stop and expound on anything. The Sermon on the Mount is so beautiful because it's simple doctrine that's all about adjusting the heart. But in one of his nuances here, talking about, I call chapter six the chapter of motives because he addresses the motives of all these religious practices that we still do. When you give your alms, when you pray, when you fast, these are part of Christianity. He says, when you fast, not if you do, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy father which is in secret, and thy father seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. We could stop and make a point right here. There's a reward to fasting. But the Lord, I want you to see twice, he says, when you do, not if you do. It's understood that believers fast. It's understood that we fast. But obviously, sometimes fasting takes a toll on your body, and so you can look like you're fasting. You may be gaunt, maybe a little sluggish. Depends on how long you fast for. The Lord is addressing the hypocritical uh, practice of looking more fasted than you really are. And he says, don't do that. Don't let anybody know you're fasting. We're not doing this for public reward. We're doing this for God's reward. So don't let anybody know what you're doing. Now, that in the last 30 years, I've seen it be taken too far to where people fast and don't tell anybody because I don't, I don't want to lose my reward. Well, if you're going to fast, tell your wife. Otherwise, she's going to take that pot pie she spent all day prepping for you and throw it at you. <laughs> and if it hits you in the face, you'll say you weren't fast enough. <laughs> I don't see a problem if you're fasting to let your coworkers know, I, I can't go out to lunch this week, guys. I'm fasting for church. And the reward be you get to explain to them what that's about and why you're doing it. And now you have a witnessing point. I don't think anybody here is going to fast for a religious reward like the Pharisees did because that's not where we're at as a culture. It's not saying don't tell people. It's just saying don't let it be the whole reason you're doing it. I don't have, I've been with many preachers who say, I can't, we're fasting coffee right now, or I'm on a 21-day fast with my church. I can't go out to eat. They don't have a problem because they're not doing it to appear spiritual to me. They're honestly kind of losing the reward going, I don't know why I decided I have my church do this. I hate this. This is horrible. Uh, they're not trying to appear spiritual. They're like, I really, I'm in charge. Why don't we shut this thing off? <laughs> so you need to see that it's when you fast, not if you do. Matthew chapter 9. Let's jump over here. Matthew 9, verse 14. Then came to Jesus the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't? So even the Pharisees and their disciples were in the habit of fasting. John and his disciples were in the habit of fasting, but Jesus' disciples weren't. You say, aha, see, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I don't have to fast. Let's read the red letters to see how the answer comes out. And Jesus said to them, can the children of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom, excuse me, the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. So Jesus is saying, can they mourn while I'm with them? There'll come a day when I'm taken, and when I'm taken, then my disciples will start fasting. So let me ask you, has the Lord been taken? Is he in heaven? So we're in a dispensation of fasting. I wouldn't want the Pharisees to be better than me. I wouldn't want John's disciples to be better than me. So here we have it, and Luke's gospel records the same passage as does Mark's, that uh, when the Lord is received up into heaven and taken from the earth, then the disciples begin to fast. If we're disciples of Jesus and he's been received, it's our turn to begin to fast. Look at uh, Luke 18. just want to build a couple scriptural points or show you a couple scriptural points as to why we fast. I was exposed to fasting in college, and we would fast for three days at a time on a pretty regular basis. I was taught, honestly, how to fast by fellow Christians I was in college with, me and my buddy Greg Seegers. He was a fellow geology major. He actually got me coming to this church. He taught me to fast, and so he and I would fast, and 
And we go for three days at a time. And we encountered the faster's tongue. That's when your tongue starts looking real skanky after two days of not eating. And then your breath is just like dank. And it's bad. And uh, we, would, we would hide it from each other that we were fasting. And, but you're like, whoa, whoa, stick your tongue out. I don't want to. Stick your tongue out. You're fasting, aren't you? Oh, yes, I am. Because we didn't want to tell anybody because we thought we'd lose a reward. But we could tell because that woolly tongue looked like you've been licking on a sheep or something. It's just all nasty and white. <laughs> Luke 18. I was just really shocked to hear a Baptist friend of mine say, I didn't know about fasting until three or four years ago. A seminarian. I, I just, we as Pentecostals, again, he was, Greg was a Pentecostal, still is. Uh, Pentecostals just pioneered some stuff. Amen. Luke 18, verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. Not a Republican. But anymore, they're pretty close. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this Republican. <laughs> I, just, I just read that. I thought, yeah, that's kind of our Republicans. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Yeah. Somebody said, Republicans aren't interested in gay marriage. They're too interested in their, their mistress. Don't ever accuse me of being unfair in this church about who I rip on. I'll bash the woke Democrats and I'll bash the reprobate Republicans. Because I want to be right with God, not some left or right leaning. Verse 12, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Fasting and tithing. How can we hear way more sermons on tithing than we do on fasting? But the two were associated. The two were tied together as righteousness and obedience to the law of Moses. He's using it to express why he's such a good believer. I fast twice in a week and I tithe on everything. And if you remember later, Jesus said, you ought to tithe on anise and cumin and mint, but don't forget the weightier matters of the law. So he's saying you should be tithing on everything, even your mint garden. But here we see it associated with fasting twice a week. He doesn't tell us what he fasts. Maybe he misses all meals. Maybe he fasts wine, which is a common drink. Maybe he fasts dainty bread or, or uh, nice food. But twice in a week, this Pharisee's testimony was, I fast. We want to make sure that if we're going to be tithers, we ought to at least be able to say, I do know how to fast and I fast regularly. I might also add, it bugs me that Mormons, as a doctrine, fast every Friday. It's church doctrine across the world. And what they do when the families do it, and every Mormon family I've ever known, which hasn't been a lot, but they fast, the money they save on food goes into the church's coffers to help take care of people. I say that's a good thing. I'm not saying Mormon doctrine is a good thing. I don't believe we're going to become a god of our own little planet and marry our spiritual wife and have little spiritual babies and save another planet. I don't believe that. That's lunacy. That's like knocking door next door with Tom Cruise and Scientology. But the notion is founded in the word. Isaiah 58 says, this is the fast I called to feed the hungry, to house the homeless. All right. I want you to see that. So why do we fast? Let's go to Isaiah 58. Why do we fast? Isaiah 58 is the longest passage in the Bible on fasting. I'm going to read it to you out of the King James. The New Living Translation brings a little, uh, some good stuff out of it. So pardon me if I'm in the King James and, and uh, you may be in a different translation. We want to look at why, why do we fast. Verse 1 says, cry aloud, Isaiah 58, 1. Spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. I just want to pause and give you a note here. This is the pastor's mandate. We're to show God's people their transgression. We're not to show them how to have a best Friday ever. At some point, my job switches over to where we're wrong. Verse 2, yet 
They seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. So tell them where they're wrong because they say they want to know it. Verse 3. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not. So one of the reasons we fast is to get God's attention. We fast to get God's attention. And this is important because it's something you do above and aboard, uh, beyond what you normally do. You're doing it with a purpose to get God's attention. Not that he has a short attention span or is distracted. But you and I both know there's things we do that gets his attention and angers him. And there's things that we do that gets his attention and he blesses us. Then there's a life you can live that never even registers on God's radar. And too many Christians go through the motions and they don't register on God's needle. Fasting is something we do with the intention of saying, Lord, look a here. Lord, look on your servant. Lord, look, I'm drawing closer to you. Lord, I'm afflicting myself, setting aside food or pleasant bread or a hobby or a lifestyle for a season to draw closer to you. It's understood with the fast that it's not something you can do forever, especially if you're fasting food or water. Now, there are certain things you can fast because they're attractions, and when you're done, you'll go back to them like a video game or coffee or your favorite drink or maybe pleasant bread. But if you really want to get God's attention, you fast something that you can't live forever without. Honestly, they talked about Smith Wigglesworth would take cold showers just to afflict his flesh. Maybe you fast hot showers in the winter. I've tried it. Like, that ain't for me. I would, I would rather fast food for a week than take cold showers for a week. I would almost say that's of the devil. If I have a hot water heater and one of those massage jet things on the shower head, why would I choose cold pain? Uh, take my coffee, Lord. Not take anything but this hot shower. <laughs> Why do we fast and you see not? Why have we afflicted our soul? I like the King James version of this, which is why I picked it. Others say humbled ourselves. Fasting, one of the things we do to fast, when we fast is we afflict our soul. If your soul doesn't feel it, you're not fasting it. I don't have to fast alcohol because it's not my life. Never has been. I don't have to fast porn because it's not my life. I don't have to fast anger. I don't have to fast Facebook or social media. I don't have to fast sports. Even though I watch a lot of sports, it doesn't have a hook on me. Uh, When you fast, and this is where we begin to make nuances to fasting, you need to pick something that afflicts your soul. Maybe that is cold showers. Maybe it's waking up at 5 o'clock instead of 10.30. Might help give you five and a half more hours in a day to do something. When you fast, fast something that afflicts your soul. Now, most modern translations will say humbled ourselves because sometimes to humble yourself is a soul affliction when you have to admit, I was wrong. Please forgive me. But the whole practice of it is afflicting your soul. To even think about going without food, your stomach starts growling, even though it's still full and you're burping up bacon fat. But you say, we're going to call a fast. And all of a sudden, your stomach convulses and starts licking ribs looking for something. I'm like, we're going to die. We're going to die. Oh, my God. What you have got to do is find something that afflicts your soul. Uh, We also kind of give this wisdom that if you're going to fast, you may not be able to fast food because of medication you're on. So don't fast food altogether. But there's permission from the Bible to fast pleasant bread. And we'll look at that. You fast the stuff you like. Eat stuff you don't like. I, sometimes I want to, I don't know, honey, we may try it. She may not like it because it'll be work for her and just me saying we did it for me. I want to do like a fast where we don't order anything. We just eat through the pantry, which means by like day seven, it's nothing but canned beans and <laughs> got any more ranch. No, we ate that five days ago. <laughs> just eat till there's nothing left in the pantry. Save some money. That would be an affliction. Even though you're getting all the calories you need, it isn't pleasant. You're not starving to death. 
it's work, and you're really having to keep your heart right the whole time. You're like, so then the question says, then why is that even in our pantry if we don't want to eat it? Why do we spend money on that? <laughs> Everybody's got one of those lazy Susans in the corner. You're like, you spin that around, they're like, that's for the nuclear fallout. We ain't touching that. And you just let it slide back around. I don't even know why we have those, because you're not touching anything that's on it. Or the stuff behind the cereal boxes in the pantry. <laughs> what you husbands ought to do or your wives, go in there and just cut all the labels off and just call it mystery can. <laughs> We're going to have mystery stew tonight. What is it? Go find you a couple cans. Hope they go well together. We're going to open them up and just heat it up. Get me some hog fat. That'll add some flavor and go with it that way. You've got to figure out what afflicts your soul. God, you're not seeing us. We've afflicted our soul, but why don't you see us? You take no knowledge. Now, obviously, what's happening is they're doing a religious thing to get God's attention, and he's ignoring them. So what transpires over the rest of Isaiah 58 is why this fasting isn't working for them, which means it should have been working for them, which is why we study Isaiah 58, because the end part of Isaiah 58 tells us the results of successful fasting. In between is all this talk of injustice and mistreatment and attitude and religion. And basically it says, go through the motions if you want, but if your heart's not right, why are you even bothering? So we fast to afflict our soul. Look at verse 8. We fast, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. We fast so that light comes forth. We want to fast to the end that we need light and fasting will bring light to our life whether it's direction. Sometimes if you need direction for a decision, you fast. You fast for direction. Maybe you need direction on family members or finances or college or major or house purchase or mission trip. There's been, I've spent many, 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 many Fridays fasting in preparation for an evening prayer that I would then go and seek God on whether I should take a mission trip or not. So I fasted all day, just drank water or coffee, would pray for an hour, and then go get dinner. I did it so that light would come to my situation. Uh, when do I fast? Anytime you need light. And it isn't coming fast enough the old-fashioned way, which is praying with a belly full of food. Your health shall spring forth speedily. Sometimes you fast because you need healing. You fast for health. That we would, I would interpret that as divine health, supernatural health. I wouldn't necessarily call it, you know, you're fasting so that your stomach can heal itself of ulcers, which there are cleanses you can do for intestinal ulcers and stomach ulcers. Uh, we would say, honestly, fast any food forever that makes you sick. In fact, your body kind of naturally does that. You eat something makes you sick as a dog. Your body swears that off the rest of your life, like scutter and bush meat. You won't ever touch it kindly declines it, says, just give me greens or potatoes or whatever you eat when we go out there. I'm kind of a stubborn glutton like that. I'm like, ah, you know, I lived. Let's have it some more. Yeah, have it again. I've told you spinach Maria. That's worth telling. I was already dying of viral meningitis. What's violent vomiting with Calhoun's spinach Maria? Uh, spinach seems to be one of those vegetables God did not intend us to eat because it's always getting E. coli and listeria and all that. You just never know who's handling it or what's getting on the water. And then it's on your. So I went to Calhoun's. I was fighting viral meningitis and was on a bunch of antivirals, but you still got to eat. So it had to be spinach maria. Calhoun's has a really good spinach maria, which I don't really know what that word means. It's just like cheesy spinach and other stuff. But it made me so sick. I had... I felt my ribs were breaking every time I'd heave. I've never had such convulsive vomiting. And so I ran to the bathroom and I thought, there's no sense in doing the toilet. I'm not going to make it. So you throw the curtain open and just laser focus. It had kind of a dish network effect. You hit it, it splatters back in every direction. And I thought my ribs were breaking. It was that convulsive. And after two or three rounds, I thought, all right, there's nothing left. So I could sit down by the toilet. And then, no, 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 one more violent, violent, aggressive contraction. And I had abs of steel in that moment. And I just tilted my head over to projectile vomit. And I'm talking like exorcist green pea. <laughs> but my angle was wrong because I was delirious. 
And so half of the spray went in the toilet and the other half hit the top of the toilet lid, which if you know, is kind of like convexed up or concaved up. And so then it went up and hit the wall in the door. <laughs> so we had spinach Maria all over that bathroom. And after those kind of harsh, horrible experiences, you just want to die to get better. You're tempted to swear off spinach Maria the rest of your life. But with every temptation, there is a way of escape. <laughs> and I took that exit, and I still eat spinach Maria to this day. But when you're bad sick enough, you just automatically fast something the rest of your life. You say, I'm never going back there again. <laughs> there are those places you go eat at, and you're like, all right, we have 15 minutes to get home. Because <laughs> I know what this food does to me. But I ain't quitting it. How can I stay mad at that yum-yum sauce? That's the 10-minute warning right there. We got to go. <laughs> Your health will spring forth. If you need healing, you ought to fast and see what's going on. Maybe there's a spirit of infirmity. Maybe there's an answer God will give you through prayer. You're fasting for healing, that your righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Maybe you need defensiveness. You need God to plead your case. And so you're fasting, almost like Ezra, when he took his trip from uh, Persia all the way across the Arabian desert, he said, we sought God because we needed protection. He fasted. He called a 12-day fast there at the river Havna. And he said, God, we need you. I was boastful and told the king, we don't need your help, king. Our God will protect us. And then they get there on the edge of the river like, oh, God, we need you to protect us. They prayed and God became their rear guard all the way across a four-month journey through the desert. Verse 9, then shalt thou call. So fasting, then calling. Then shalt thou call and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry and he shall say, here I am. So fasting, we fast to get the Lord to hear us. Now, this is kind of that, that quandary that, well, doesn't he hear us anyway? Absolutely. Doesn't he hear what I, when I sin? Absolutely. But this is an answer to prayer. That's why we do it, to magnify our voice, to magnify our prayers, to cause God to answer when we cry out to him. When he sees you afflict yourself for him and he sees you cry out for him, you get his attention. Not that he ever loses track of us. That's why there's this theological tension. But we understand fasting accomplishes something. That's why I also wanted you to look at the Lord saying, when you fast, when you fast, when you fast, you don't stop. We just do it because God answers. Jesus Christ fasted. If the Son of God fasted and it empowered him, are we better than our master? No. I like to remind you like Mark 8 when he was casting the demon out of the lunatic boy and the disciples had been trying for a while and they said, Lord, why couldn't we? And he said, this type only comes out with prayer and fasting. And we must remember the Lord had been on the Mount of Transfiguration for several days without food. They'd been up there so long. Remember, Peter said, let's put some tents up. You don't put tents up if you're not going to be up there for a while. So even prayer and fasting brought in an endowment of new power or fresh power upon the Lord to go cast a demon out. That bothers folks who, who fail to view the hypostatic union of Christ, who want to see Christ as completely divine and forget that he was also human. Amen. All right. Here am I. If thou take away from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger and the speaking of vanity. I, I, somebody pointed this out to me. The putting forth of the finger is the blame. Fasting helps you quit blaming everybody. Because when you're fasting, all you can focus on is you and that stomach, you and that appetite. Maybe you have a, a trouble being critical or blame. You have trouble uh, always pointing the finger. You have trouble being the victim. Fasting will help break that out of your life. I've never viewed myself as much of a victim of anything, not that I haven't been victimized, not as bad as some, but it might be worth trying. I might, I'd like to hear a testimony so I could preach it anonymously. I'd like to see somebody get the victory over the victim mindset by seeking God. Victim mindset is like any other perverse mindset, but here it says, quit putting forth the finger that says, you're the reason blank. You're the reason, you're the reason, you're the reason, you're the reason. How about shut up and fast? Figure out that God's the reason and watch things turn for you. 
and the speaking of vanity. Fasting will help you break that. If you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted, this is what we do now while we fast, then thou shalt, uh, thy, thy light, then shall thy light rise in obscurity. He's talking about once you get the formula right, the heart condition right, your light will rise in obscurity and darkness. Thy darkness will be as the noonday. Here's that affirmation that more light will come. Fasting brings light to your life. It isn't simply going without food. People go without food all the time. Those weird inmates will go on hunger strikes. They don't have an epiphany with God. Sometimes in the hospital, you have to be put on a liquid diet. You don't have an epiphany from God. This is a purposed, intentional fast to seek God. You go without food at lunch so you can spend that 30 minutes seeking God. Your stomach growls at you all day, so you're speaking to yourself saying, shut up, shut up. We're fasting. Shut up. Father, I need your help. It activates a sensitivity to God that you don't have when all you do is drink Mountain Dews and eat Ho-Hos and Ding Dongs. When you feed your flesh, you are spiritually dull. When you deprive your flesh, it entunes you to the Spirit of God. Now, it can only be done for so long because then you can kill yourself through starvation or dehydration. So it's a constant ebbing and flowing. To try to curb a lot of the Pentecostal excesses that developed in the 50s and 60s, Brother Hagin went around teaching, live a fasted life. I've been to Africa many times to hear them talk about fasting where Pastor Brett knows they'd command their women to fast water while they were nursing. And we had to say, what do you... And they're like, well, maybe that's why the women pass out walking to church. Well, you think? Like, no, no, a thousand times. No, you don't fast water. You're nursing a baby. You're going to be judged of God for killing that baby. Your paps will run dry. I mean, you're going to die. The kid's going to die. So we've had to teach some balanced truth to fasting because those Africans are hardcore. They'll just fast everything for a month. And I don't know if they accomplish anything with it except for hunger and starved babies. So there has to be a balance. In fact, Brother Hagin, I think, published a book called A Common Sense Guide to Fasting. So live a fasted life. If anybody was preparing to fast, I know my wife did this. You're thinking, come Sunday, we're going to start fasting. So Saturday. <laughs> we had donuts last night. So I was over there doing something, watching Tennessee get beat, and everybody's eating donuts. I said, honey, she said, don't worry. There's one for you over here, too. So I uh, had donut about 10 o'clock last night. Not proud of it, but I don't regret it either. <laughs> it wasn't spinach Maria, but it was pretty good, especially after eight seconds in the microwave and everything gets real soggy. And that, oh, man. I mean, even a nine-day-old donut tastes good after 10 seconds in the microwave. <laughs> Your body's like sugar and lard and flour. Where have you been since yesterday? Your light will break forth. Light will rise in obscurity. Darkness will be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide thee continually. We keep seeing this pattern of direction, protection, healing. Direction, protection, healing. These are good reasons to fast. Direction, light, protection, rear guard, and healing. If you need any of these, these are reasons to fast. So keep reading, then we've got to jump back to the New Testament. He'll satisfy your soul in a drought. Make fat your bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. That's promotion. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many uh, generations. Thou shalt be called the repair of the breach, the restore of paths to dwell in. That's the revival and the unity Pastor Steve is wanting us to pray and believe God for. Verse 13 and let me throw this out there to help us understand the doctrine of the Sabbath. I've just done a very, 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 very thorough on the Sabbath. And right now it's very easy to get religious on a Sabbath and not want to go out to eat because, you know, somebody has to work on the Sabbath. Well, if you stay home, somebody has to work so you can eat. So we can get religious on the Sabbath, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, knowing that there were multiple Sabbaths to the Jew, depending on the holy day. Some weeks would have as many as three Sabbaths in them. And then there's a thing called the Sabbath year. 
I don't hear any whack Pentecostal or Seventh-day Adventist promoting the Sabbath year, which happened every six years. You took a whole year off. Oh, you didn't know there's a Sabbath year. And then every 50th year, it was called the year of Jubilee. That was a Sabbath year. And in that year, they did no work. Not on their crops, their vineyards, their olive yards, their wheat fields. They left it fallow. I don't see anybody promoting that in the name of let's get back to the law. Because we're failing to catch the heart behind what a Sabbath is anyway. So verse 13 tells us, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight. This is the heart behind the Sabbath. A day where we don't focus on our thing, we focus on God's thing. One of the reasons our Sundays are a much bigger deal than our Wednesdays or our prayer services is this is how we honor the Sabbath. We come dressed up on the Sabbath because it's a delight. That's how we make this day different. We're a lot more casual on a Wednesday, though I almost always wear a suit and tie. But our prayer services, which are probably our most anointed, are very casually dressed because it's not our Sabbath. The Sabbath is a delight. And I also want to say I will never dress up better for a funeral or a wedding than I will to preach the word. There's something wrong when I'll dress up better to bury a mediocre, lukewarm church member than I will to declare the holy gospel of the living God on the Sabbath. Call the Sabbath the delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing your own thing, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. This is about the heart of the Sabbath there, but it ties into the attitudes behind everything. That's a whole other sermon altogether, but I want you to see that when we get fasting right, there's a lot of things it's meant to do. And that's why we fast. Direction, protection, healing. Direction, protection, healing. And the final promise there in verse 12 is of promotion and being able to build things that God wants built. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Why do we fast? Let's look at some New Testament verses. We're just doing some teaching this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So we've got to go quick here. We fast to keep our body under. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul said, I keep under my body, I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Fasting is a tool that helps us put our flesh under. Everybody's flesh reacts a little bit differently. This is why Dr. Barclay says, fast your attractions. What are those things that attract you? He says, fast your attractions so they don't become distractions. That's kind of in line with what Brother Hagin taught. Again, coming from two Pentecostals, because Pentecostals, we were, we were birthed in fasting. My kids are fasting right now. I was never taught fasting until I got to college. Not that my parents didn't teach me things, but Baptists didn't have that doctrine. But our kids are fasting. My kids have already decided what they're going to fast this week, and I'm very proud of them because what they're fasting is not necessarily food, though we are fasting sweets. They're fasting things that really do afflict their soul. And they've chosen to do it on their own. Brother Hagin said, live a fasted life. Dr. Barclay said, fast your attractions. Whatever is causing your flesh to dominate and control you, that's what you fast. It can be something as counterintuitive as, as, as fitness. You may have to fast fitness because you're obsessed. And there was a time in college when I was fitness obsessed. And if I... If I didn't go for a run, I felt like I was going to be 50 pounds overweight the next day and I could hear my heart scream at me and I would say, all right, just for that, we're not running for three days because you're not going to obsess over this thing. I've read stories of uh, ultra marathoners, ultra runners who were so obsessed with running. One lady in particular who holds all the world's records. She couldn't sit still. So when her families took road trips, They'd stop off at the gas station. She'd say, pick me up down the road. She'd get out and just start running down the interstate while they went to the bathroom and gassed up the car and grabbed lunch. They'd pick her up down the road 10 miles. That's obsessed. What do I fast, pastor? Whatever you're obsessed over. What, what, do you, what obsesses you? What consumes you? What almost becomes an idol to you? It may be a necessary thing, but it's still controlling you way too much. Fitness is a necessary thing, but when you can't sit still at a rest stop, 
It's called a rest stop. You may want to fast that. Could be you're obsessed over keeping your house clean. How about fast cleaning your house for a day just to watch the world tick on? Because you're kind of maybe consumed that concern it may blow up if you don't have everything just right where it needs to be. So just sit there and breathe in chaos <laughs> and realize it's going to be okay. The grass doesn't have to be cut, just so. Pete Hawes came and cut my grass one time at the lowest setting possible on a lawnmower and then caught himself like two stripes up my yard before somebody else said, hmm, pastor's going to pray you home to heaven too early. So I, I said, Pete, he was so apologetic. He was down to where it was just white. You ever cut grass so low it's just white? He's like, I was wondering why your lawnmower was bogging. I, so then he cut the rest of it at the proper. So then I had to do like a high top fade out and I had to like set it in between and kind of fade it on those two passes. I'm like I should have been a yard barber. <laughs> It'll be all right. Whatever you obsess is something worth fasting. Whatever might make you a castaway, whatever your body screams for, yearns for, it may be as simple as just comb your hair for once. I would honestly tell some of you, brush your teeth before you come to church once. Some of you maybe just don't dress up once. You can go to Walmart looking like cookful people. You'll blend right in. Maybe you obsess over your looks and you need to know it's okay. I'm trying to teach you what to fast to loosen your life up so you don't get wound so tight in one pitfall or another that you have this nice balanced life. You know when to be respectable and when it's okay to go to church wearing jamma bottoms and flip-flops. Some of you are like, oh, what, what? Yeah, that even their own. You go, what, what? Did you hear that heart squeak and squawk? What, 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 what? If I figure out who it is, I'll command you to do it. And then I'm going to follow you there and film it so we can see you out. Hopefully your jamma bottoms are like bottoms. Because if you're thinking like a long flannel dress, yeah, don't do that. How will you get on the hover round and shop like that? I've seen it done, though. Daniel chapter 1. Let's look there real quick. Fast anything that holds your flesh in captivity. Anything your flesh obsesses over. Video games, TV. One of the things I'm fasting for the next three weeks is news in the media because I consume a lot of news uh, and it's hard on me when I have to dry it up. So this is a thing that will afflict me. It is not very difficult for me to fast several days at a time fasting nothing but water. Uh, that's not hard for me. Fasting news and media, fasting coffee is a lot harder for me because it's part of my routine. Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 5, the king appointed them, that is Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, a daily provision of the king's meat. Daniel chapter 1, after the, he's the last major prophet before he hit the minor prophets. A daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank. So nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah, unto whom the princes of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. So they were all renamed. Verse 8, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the princes of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Maybe you fast the food that defiles you. And so what he did is he took pulse, which is like cream of wheat, and water. So rather than eating from the king's table and drinking of the king's vineyard, he ate very lowly food and water for 10 days just to prove him that I will be fine. I would tell you this, if we would principalize it, fast whatever food defiles you. What is it? It's going to be different for everybody. What defiles you? What are you just literally a glutton for? There's nothing that says you've got to have 9,000 calories a day. If, you're, if you live a sedentary life, you probably only need 1,500 calories a day, which means you don't need a drive through menu meal because that's going to be 2,000 calories at lunch. What defiles you? What defiles your life? What shames you? 
What is hurting your lifestyle? What is hurting your health? Fast that kind of food. Eat only vegetables for the next 21 days and do protein shakes if you need protein. Medically, you can go 40 days without food and be all right. Your stomach says you can't go 40 minutes. All this food we've talked about this morning, your stomach's growling, stomach's licking ribs. You're going, well, I need something to eat. You can go 39 more days after today before you really were in trouble. That's something to think about. You can go four days without water. You can go four minutes without air. We, 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 we live in a culture where we carry snacks in our purse and fanny pack, men. I don't know if those don't go together. We carry food in our glove box and our purses in case we get hungry between breakfast and brunch. How about fast snack time? How about fast what's breaking your budget financially? How about, as an assignment, you go tally up all the money you spent eating out last year and then hate your life? <laughs> you eat out every day at lunch because now it's $15, 20 with a tip. 20 days, that's $100 a week. You're talking $5,000 in the year just to eat out at lunch when you can make yourself a PB&J with some celery for a buck? We're not just helping your weight, we're helping your budget. And it just takes this thing called discipline. And a disciplined life is a better life. So fast, pleasant bre uh, uh, bread that defiles you, fast, pleasant bread Eat, this is what they call the Daniel fast, when you eat things that you don't really want to eat, but puts your flesh under and puts food in your stomach. Uh, last few things here. With that, whatever you obsess over, just write down 1 Peter 5. Cast all your cares over, over on him. That's how you fast obsessions and cares. Just determine for the next 21 days you're not going to fret. That doesn't mean you drop responsibilities. You just refuse to fret over them. I just refuse to fret it. Just like... Fred, getting the victory over obsessions is like speaking to a, a growling stomach. Every time your stomach growls while you're fasting, you say, shut up. Anytime your mind growls over your obsession, you say, shut up. And you fast both of them. Now, how about this last po uh, thought here? Let's go to second, uh, 1 Thessalonians. This is where we'll wrap it up. I'm not going to get to all my scriptures, but I think we're catching the heart of it. I really would challenge you. I'm not going to mandate it. I want you to choose to do it on your own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Pick something to fast the next 21 days. And in your prayer time, pray for unity among the churches. Pray for anointing upon the body of Christ in our region to win the lost. But we were already in a momentum before uh, we started discussing this with the other churches about fasting as group bodies, or the local churches. Fast to get the victory over whatever's plaguing you. That's why I want to look at Isaiah 58, because it shows about your light breaking forth and healing coming. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. What do we fast? We fast the thing that's evil. Now, there's a difference between fasting and abstinence. Fasting is temporary deprivation. Abstinence is total elimination. It may be you have to practice fasting this sin before it becomes a total abstinence. So... Maybe your thing is porn. Maybe that's what you're trying to get the victory over. Fast it. And your soul will squawk for it like someone else's might be a big burger. You fasting porn because it has a chemical addiction in your brain, literally, may be just as hard on you as a woman trying to fast social media. Because social media does the same thing to the brain that porn does to the brain. It's a dopamine issue. It shrinks the stimulus portion right there behind the eyes. The more you feed it, the more it shrinks, the more you have to have it to get any kind of oomph. It's kind of counterintuitive. They would thought, well, the more porn you watch, the more you'll swell that thing in your brain. It shrinks it. 
The more social media you're on, it doesn't swell it, it shrinks it, so you have to be on social media more. It's an addiction. So I don't want to beat up on porn addicts, cause, but some of you are social media addicts. It's just as da- deadly. It can be just as perverse. Maybe what we're doing is we're fasting as we're approaching abstinence. Same with, with cigarettes. Maybe you fast cigarettes for two hours. Because before it was a cigarette every 30 minutes, but I went, I went four cigarettes before I had a cigarette. And then, then you go another three hours. And before long, you've only smoked four cigarettes in the day, which seems like not much, but you fasted 10 cigarettes you would have had. And then tomorrow you fast one less cigarette or one more, so you're down to three cigarettes. And you're fasting whatever your sin is as you approach terminal abstinence. Whatever your thing is, maybe you fast being mouthy. Maybe you fast being critical. Maybe you fast too much TV or dirty movies. Whatever you're struggling with, fast it. Dr. Barclay tells folks, hey, you, they'll offer him a drink from time to time. He said, no, I'm fasting alcohol. Really? When did you start? 47 years ago. <laughs> or whenever it was in the World War, or, uh, Vietnam. So he's, he's 70 now. So it's probably 20. I, I, well, I started that fast 50 years ago. Never broke it. Still fasting alcohol. Maybe we need to look to fast whatever sin we're dealing with. Because you can go without it for a season. If you can go without food, you can go without whatever your sin is. Because food has a lot more pertinent role in your life than whatever your sin is. If you can go without three meals a day, you can go without three cigarettes. Do whatever it takes to get the victory over whatever you're battling. And fasting is a critical tool because it also teaches your body you're in charge. It is not. Now, last point, because we're way over. I shouldn't say way over. We're just over. Brother Summerall said, man is a three-part being. We agree. He said, the spirit man is king. The soul is a servant and the body is a slave. And he said, but most Christians have that completely reversed. They allow their body to be the king Their soul is a servant and their spirit man is a slave to go wherever the flesh wants. Fasting helps us keep that three-part being in line. It keeps your flesh under. You're fasting whatever it pulls on your flesh and your soul. So you pinpoint what that is. There's nothing that says you can't fast three things at once, but we're going to do this for the next 21 days. If you fall off the fast wagon, no condemnation. Get up, dust yourself off, Maybe wipe that chicken grease off your lip, lip, <laughs> off your chin with a soapy washcloth so the rest of us can't smell your grease. And get back on the wagon with the rest of us. We won't leave you behind. We're trying to beat stuff right now. We're not going to succeed the first couple javelin missiles we throw. But we're going to keep throwing javelin missiles till we beat this thing. All right? So you, you got an assignment. You got a plan of attack. Got some understanding, some teaching. This ought to be part of our life. If a Pharisee can fast twice in a week, I think we can do something for Jesus too.